Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus uh, this morning. And, and before we turn to God's Word, let me just make one uh, brief announcement. Is that uh, next Sunday, uh, November 10th, we're going to have a congregational meeting here uh, at 6 p.m. And we'll talk about a few things at that meeting. The main uh, kind of order of business is that we have an election for uh, Micah Lasley. Micah Lasley has, uh, was nominated to be an elder by our congregation about a year ago. He's been in training for about a year. That includes some classes. Uh, he's been uh, sitting in with our session, which is a group of elders who kind of govern our church body. And, uh, and then he had a Bible and theology exam, and he's been, had an oral examination with our elders as well. So our elders are presenting him as a, a qualified candidate to you as a congregation. And important thing about our church, we're a Presbyterian church. And one of the things that being Presbyterian means is that uh, you have a plurality of elders who kind of oversee our church. And they are elected by you. So uh, we don't appoint who the elders are in church. You elect them. And so if you are a member of Christ Church, it's an important uh, congregational meeting to come to next Sunday, 6 p.m. Uh, hope you can be there. So um, also, if you don't know Micah, you can email him or, or uh, reach out to him. you got one more week. If you want to ask him any questions about what he believes or what his vision for the church is, you're free to do that. So... Uh, so that's uh, just one brief announcement. We're going to turn now to God's Word. We, uh, uh, we've been studying through Exodus, and this fall, for the last uh, couple months, we've been looking at the, um, the section of Exodus where God gives instructions about building a tent. You know, the Israelites are living in the wilderness right now. They've come out of slavery, and God says that you're gonna, you all live in tents. I'm going to live in a tent, too, with you, and you're going to build me a tent called the Tabernacle. We've been, it's taken us a couple months to look at all the furniture that's in the tent, and it's pretty interesting, some of those details. We're now, the story transitions to the famous story of, of the golden calf, and we'll be looking at Exodus 32, 33, and 34 from now up, right up until Christmas. And then after Christmas, we'll return to our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, we started last year after Christmas. Uh, we'll be picking up, I think, in, in John chapter 7, so... Uh, so here we are, though, in Exodus 32, and we're, we're looking at Exodus 32 in two parts, one part this week, and then the second part next week. So there's a gap right in here. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10, and then we skip down to verse 21. So you can follow along right there in your bulletin. Uh, Exodus 32, hear the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed... To come down from the mountain, the, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who uh, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Skipping down to verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Uh, We need your light, the light of your truth, to shine into our lives so that we would understand who you are and that we would understand ourselves and the ways of our own hearts. And as your light shines upon us, would you guide us to Jesus, our only Savior, our only Lord. And so uh, send your spirit now to be our teacher. Apply the words of this text, the words that I speak into each one of our individual lives so that we could turn to you in faith and obedience. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are talking about the topic of uh, idolatry or the worshiping of false gods. And uh, the passage that we're studying today is probably the most famous Story of idolatry in the Bible, the story of the golden calf. Aaron makes a golden calf. And in many ways, actually, this passage kind of launches a, uh, a, a, the idolatry that basically plagues the Israelite people for the next thousand years that are recorded in the Bible. Or a thousand years. They just continually have a problem with turning away from the true and living God and turning to false gods like the statue. And I think this passage is very insightful into understanding the human heart because probably the defining quality of, you know, what makes humans different than other animals, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can answer that. One way that people answer it is that the defining thing about us is that we are the animal that worships. And every human animal worships. doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a Christian or a Buddhist. There is something in your life that you give your ultimate devotion to you will find something to devote your life to that you treat as a God. And uh, the Bible claims that we were made only to worship our creator, the one true and living God. And anytime we substitute for the one true and living God, false gods, lesser gods, and we give ourselves to them, those false gods, it not only dishonors God, but it also those gods will enslave us and dehumanize us. And actually, non-Christians have observe this, uh, David Foster Wallace has, has a famous quote where he puts it this way. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. If you worship money and things, 
If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It has been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. Wallace says that everybody worships something. And so today we're going to talk about idolatry. What are the gods that we chase after? And we're going to look at idolatry by answering five questions that this passage answers for us. And this is what they are. What is an idol? Why do we make them? How can we identify them in our own lives? We're often blind to the things that we're often serving and worshiping, the gods we're really serving. How, how can we identify them? What effect do they have on us? And lastly, how can we be set free from them? I think this is one of the most important questions in our spiritual development is identifying the idols that we give ourselves to and turning from them to the living God. And so uh, five questions this morning, and the first is this. What is an idol? And I think, you know, the clearest answer to that comes in this passage of verse 4, where it says, And Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now what strikes me is that they make this false god and they say, This is the God who saves you. This is a God who rescued you out of slavery. And so what that means is we don't just worship idols because we're looking for a spiritual experience. We worship idols that we believe have the power to save us from this fallen and broken world. What are the things that we think can save us from the fallen and broken world? And the Israelites, you know, they're not only former slaves who are now wandering around in the wilderness. They're in a place where food and water were scarce. And in, they're anxious they're fearful, they're in the midst of a trial, and they cry out, give us something to worship. Give us a Savior we can see. They are hungry for a Savior. And so when we ask, what is an idol? An idol is something that we look to as a Savior instead of God himself. So I'll give you an example. You know, I, I watched a really... Uh, fascinating documentary a couple weeks ago. It's called Minding the Gaps on Hulu. If you want to watch it, it's got quite a bit of language if you've got to be able to handle that. But the, uh, it's about this group of teenage skateboarders. And it's like basically my little group of friends from high school when I was like 15. And it makes a documentary about them. And they're, you know, it follows them around. They're smoking weed and getting drunk and, and uh, you know, getting kicked out of places for skateboarding. Um, but they're all, all these kids are interviewed and it's, and it's, it's all the conversations that, that I never had with my friends about like what was really happening in their lives. And uh, they all came from pretty broken, abusive homes and their lives are chaotic and stressful, but they're all these great skateboarders. And actually, as you're watching the movie or you're watching the documentary, the, the skateboarding segments basically function as a relief for you as a viewer because you're hearing all these things about this domestic violence and it's just really, you know, some of it's pretty brutal, it's hard. And then you get this skateboarding where it kind of gives you some rest from that. And, uh, and, and one of, uh, in one of those segments, there's this voiceover while you're watching the skateboarding 
where the kids are talking about like what skateboarding meant to them, why it was so important. And, and this, is, this is how they say it. They say, you know, to other people, it's funny. Ha ha. You know, these guys are crazy. But in reality, I think it is a control thing. You have to control the most minute details to make you feel normal in a world that is not normal. It's incredibly insightful. This kid is understanding, he's saying, what saves me from the anxiety of this fallen and broken world is feeling in control of that skateboard. And then he goes on, he said, it would, it would be like a drug in a way. I'd be on the verge of having a mental breakdown, but as long as I'm able to skate, then I am completely fine. But as soon as the effect of the drug wears off, it just comes back to you. It's interesting, actually, in that part of the voiceover, one of the kids is doing, dropping this ledge, and they drops the ledge on the skateboard, and the skateboard snaps in half. And the, the uh, video camera goes up to the skateboard that's broken in half, and written on the skateboard, it says, this device cures heartache. It's pretty powerful, because it's like, wow, that's, this board is a god, and it's broken in half. It, you know, it obviously failed, but skateboarding functioned as a god for these kids. It brings control and relief in the midst of chaos. It gave them community. And it may be the only thing in their lives that they gave almost a religious devotion to. I mean, they're incredibly disciplined. This is something they did every day. They practiced over and over. It's like, it was like religious discipline was given to their god. You will have something at the center of your life that you give religious discipline to. Religious devotion. And if you don't trust in the Lord, you will find another thing to worship and you will treat it like a savior. Now you might hear that and you say, well, I mean, what's wrong with these kids having some relief from the chaos of, you know, domestic of abuse in, in skateboarding? Isn't it good that they uh, have something to go to that's constructive, that they're spending their time on? To, uh, uh, are you going to make them feel bad? about this skateboarding that they've turned into a god. And, you know, I think that touches on one of the most important things about false gods is that idols are always good things. They are always gifts from God. But they are good things that we have turned into ultimate things. And it's striking, you know, in the documentary, you watch it, if you go watch it, you see how beautiful skateboarding is. And yet they admit that it fails to save them. As soon as they're done, the drug wears off. It's not a God who can rescue them. They even admit it. And I'm not saying that skateboarding is bad. I love skateboarding. That's why I actually watched that, <laughs> that documentary is because I love skateboarding. But skateboarding is a good gift from God. It is a bad God. Your work is a good gift from God. It is a bad God. It will fail you. Sex and romance and family are good gifts from God. They are bad gods. Recreation. Okay, running or mountain biking or snowboarding or skiing or whatever you do is a good gift from God. It is a bad God if you make it the center of your life and you give your ultimate obedience to it. And so first, what is an idol? It is a good created thing that we look to instead of God as our savior from the fallen and broken world. And you know, some of you know John Calvin's famous for saying that our hearts are idol factories, that we will grab onto anything in the world. You know, there's a million things you can make a God of, out of. We are experts at taking something and making it into a God. We are hungry for saviors, and we turn to people, we turn to things, we turn to, turn to pleasures, and we turn them into idols. So that leads to our second question. Why do we do that? Why do we make so many gods? You know, both the Israelites... And these kids that are skateboarding, 
you know, they, they both have these chaotic and stressful lives. Why don't they turn to the Lord? Why did they turn to false gods to be their gods? Well, a couple answers from this passage. First, we make idols because we can't see God. And you see that in verse 1 when it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses was God's representative to the people. He was the one that they saw. And he had gone up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, so he's disappeared up on the mountain. They haven't talked to him. You know, that's where he got all the instructions for the tabernacle. And so their leader is gone, and then God himself is invisible. You know, you can't see him. You can't touch him. And, you know, I don't know how many times I've had people say that to me. It's like, you know, the problem with having a relationship with God is you can't hear his voice talking to you. You can't, like, grab onto him. You can't touch him. You can't, you can't see that he is there. And that's why we would rather worship an idol that we can see and touch. You know, why do we often make romantic relationships the center of our life so easily? It's someone who's there. We can see the person. We don't want to live by faith. We want to live by sight. And when we live by sight, we feel more in control. I know what's happening. I don't have to trust God. I don't have to take him at his word. I want a God I can see, I can touch, and I can control that does what I want. So the first thing, the reason we make idols is simply because we can't see God. He's invisible. And the only way to trust God means we have to trust his word, what he says to us in his word. That's all we have. Second, we make idols because we want immediate relief from suffering. I'm sorry to tell you this. The Christian life is about waiting on God. If you were to probably summarize what the Christian life is about, it is about waiting on God to give us relief from the suffering of this life. That happens in short term. That ha- I mean, our whole life is that. We live in this fallen world and we're waiting for God to eventually come and give us relief from it. It also happens, you know, in seasons of our life where we have to wait through suffering for God to give us relief. And the Israelites in this passage, you know, they've been liberated from slavery, but now they're wandering around in the, in the wilderness. And God has promised them that they're going to go to the promised land. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. There is relief coming, but they have to wait for God to give them that gift and give them relief in his own timing. And the human heart does not want to do that. The human heart does not want to wait on God. The human heart does not want to trust God. And basically, every sin we do comes from not being willing to suffer for a time. And in this passage, when, you know, when Aaron makes the golden calf, what, it, what are they doing with the golden calf? Look at what it says in verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the word for play there is laughter. They were laughing. And they're dancing, they're eat, drinking, they're eating, they're laughing. They're, it's a party. They're partying. Why do we party? We party because we want comfort. We want salvation from the stress and anxiety of living in a fallen world. And since idols are always good things, the idols that we worship are always good gifts from God, that means that they give us pleasure because God is the inventor of pleasure. He is the giver of pleasure because he is good. And so they tempt us with the thought, I don't need to wait for God. I can get myself relief from suffering now with this pleasure from this false God. Now, this raises a question that, you know, if God, okay, God made those pleasures. 
Doesn't God want us to have relief from the, the stress of this world? If he's good and he knows what we're going through and we've got hard families, we've got hard work, we've got our own sin and we've got disappointment that happens in our life, didn't he make all these pleasures so that we could have some relief? And the answer is absolutely. Yes, he did. And so every good gift he gives us, we are supposed to respond with thanksgiving. Uh, and so how do we know when my relationship to God's good gifts, on the one hand, they're supposed to be received by him with thanksgiving, and I'm supposed to glorify him. How do I know when my relationship has shifted from receiving with thanksgiving to now I have turned the gift instead of the giver as the object of my worship, the thing that I trust in? How do I know that that shift has happened? Well, that's our third question. How can we identify our idols? What are the things that have gotten supreme allegiance from us in our lives? And, you know, in verse 1, the people say, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They were looking for an idol that would lead them through the wilderness. And so idols are the things that lead and guide our lives in decision-making. They're the things that make demands on us. So idols are the things we cannot say no to. So if you never say no to the demands of your work or your career, advancements in your career, no matter the effect that's happening on your church community or your family or your relationships, I obey what my work demands of me no matter what. Your work is an idol. If you are in love with someone and you can't say no to them, they are an idol. If you have athletic goals or other personal goals that take over your life and everything else is subservient to those goals, those goals function as a god to you. And by the way, you know, you can make your own yourself an idol, your own emotions and your own, you know, that's probably the, the great idol of our culture is follow your heart no matter what. Don't listen to what anyone else tells you. Which is, it's of course partly true. You should listen to your heart. You should understand your heart and the things that your heart's saying to you and think about what's happening in your inner life. But the Bible also says that your heart is deceptive. So you should, not, you should also get input from other people and, from, of course, from God and from his word and from Christians in your life. Your, your heart should not be given the status of being a god. Idols are the things that we obey without question. Or another way to identify your idols is by looking at where your money goes. You see how the golden calf was made in this passage, verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. The people's gold made the idol. If you want to identify the idols in your life, follow the gold. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to find out where your heart is most devoted, what your heart worships, follow your money. Your money flows easily to the things that you're devoted to. And so, you know, what are the things that when you're doing your budget with your spouse, like this line is non-negotiable. This line, you know, cannot be touched. Why is that line non-negotiable? Why is there no debating? Why is it so immovable? That is the thing that we think has the power to make us happy. And that is why we defend it so diligently. So how do we identify our idols? What are the things we can't say no to? Where does our money go? 
And what are the non-negotiables? These are the things that have been elevated to the status of a God in our lives. Now, I want to reiterate a crucial point. I'm not saying that anyone should feel guilty about falling in love or about working hard or about enjoying recreation. These are all good gifts from God to be received with thanksgiving. But if someone challenges you about one of these things becoming an idol, how defensive do you get? How religiously protective are you of your job or your money or your recreation or your children? And you might push back and you say, you know, okay, so we turn to creative things to kind of save us from the stress of, uh, of this life and this world. You know, God is invisible, and so we have these little gods that comfort us. So uh, we do what they ask, and we spend our money on them. Is that really that big a deal? You know, we have these little gods on the side that we can kind of go to that make us feel better when, you know, life is hard. Is it really that big a deal? Well, for one, this passage says idolatry is a big deal. Uh, the Lord is so displeased with this idolatry among his people that he almost scraps the whole Israel idea. This is what he says in verse, verse 10. It says, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. He says, you know what, Moses, I'm just going to make a nation out of you. The Lord is clearly displeased with idolatry. And so why is God so angry? This is the fourth point is we have to look at the effect that idols have on us. What effect do idols have upon us? And there's three things I want to point out. First, idols make us unfaithful. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Our idols corrupt us. And if you, you know, sympathize with that argument about, you know, what's wrong with having a little God on the side that, you know, gives me a little comfort when I need it and I give it devotion that I, whatever it demands of me. The same argument could be made about a married man who sleeps with prostitutes. He says, listen, life is hard and stressful. Marriage is hard. My wife isn't always as sexually available as I'd like her to be. You know, it helps me to stay in the marriage if I can get a little action on the side. What do you think about that guy? You're like, yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. No, that's not reasonable. He's a sleazebag. He's a jerk. He's a betrayer. And we're like, no way. The Bible says throughout the Old Testament, that is what idolatry is. God made us. He said, I made you for myself. I made you to know me and to love me and to de depend on me. And uh, idolatry is the chasing after prostitutes. And a very real reason not to give ourselves to false gods is because it dishonors the God who made us and loves us. It is a betrayal. And so idols make us unfaithful. It's like cheating on God. But, you know, there's a second problem that always goes with cheating. Whenever you're cheating, you always do a second thing, and that is that idols make us into liars as well. And, it, it, you know, it's almost amusing Aaron's response when he's confronted with Moses about making the golden calf. Uh, you look at the blame shifting and the deception. Look what happens in verse 21. It says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. that They, set, they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods that, we shall go, that they shall go before us. As, uh, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron says, 
You know, it's the people's fault. They, they, you know how they are. They are the ones who wanted the idol. And then they were blaming you. They said you disappeared. They said it was your fault. And then Aaron comes out with a flat-out lie in verse 24. And he says, so I said to them, let any who have made, uh, ha- let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And I just put it in the fire, and out came this calf. And you're like, that is not what happened. That is just a flat-out lie. We will go to great lengths to justify and defend our idols. We will lie to ourselves and others to keep our little gods. We will blame shift and deceive. And part of the reason we can be so self-deceived about our idolatry is because we often clothe our idols with a kind of decency. You know, we want our gods to be respectable gods. And so, you know, what are they doing here? They they call the golden calf Yahweh, who, you know, that's Israel's God, and they make an altar, and they bring burnt offerings and peace offerings. These are all things that the Lord has commanded to give to him. You know, this is a very Christian, godly idol worship that is happening here. And, uh, but they are lying to themselves. And so idols make us into unfaithful liars. That is why God says this is so serious. And they are so subtle. But there is a third effect that idols have on us. Is that idols make us into their own image. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, commentators all say that the kind of animal that is stiff-necked is an oxen, especially oxen that do not want to go the direction that you're trying to make them go. And so basically what the Lord is saying, you worshipped a stiff-necked golden calf, and you have become like the God you worshipped. And this is exactly, if you go read Psalm 115, Psalm 115 talks about idolatry, and uh, this is exactly what it says. I'm going to read to you a few verses. This is what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So you got these statues that they make. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like whatever you worship. Your worship defines your character, your identity. So if you worship, you know, perfect houses on Pinterest, and you just say, you know, that, that house, a house like this, if I had that, that would just, my life would finally be happy if I had that. You will become like those perfect pictures. You will hide the messes in your heart, and you will always be, pretend to be without flaws, and your relationships will be as shallow as Pinterest is. You will become what you worship. If friends are your idol, so maybe you're a teenager, and you're like, you know, what I want more than anything is to fit in. I want that crowd of people. I want to fit into them. And uh, you will be transformed into the thing you worship, the thing that you were most devoted to do. You know, when I got my group of friends I was talking about when I was 15, what did I do? I shaved my head. I started, got some big pants that I sagged past my butt, and then I got a skateboard. I became the thing that I worshipped. We turn into our golden calves, or as Jamie Smith puts it, you are what you love. All this says, do not flirt with idols. They will make you unfaithful liars who make you into their own stupid image. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so our final question then is this. How can we be set free from our idols?
And the answer is, of course, that there's a flip side to you become like what you worship. Because some of you might see idols that seem to have a death grip on your life and you say, you know, these, I've had these idols in my life for decades. You know, if your work or your money or recreation or pornography or your own emotions or romantic relationships, they're just idols that I just have been locked into for, for so long. How could I ever disentangle myself? The good news is you become what you worship. If you worship Jesus, the good news is you will become like him. You will begin to think like him. You will feel like he does. You will speak like he does. You will love like he does. You will serve like he does. You do not need to change yourself. Your God changes you. And so the only thing you need to do is change your God. And so the answer to idolatry is repentance. Repentance is turning from false gods and turn to the living God. Today, I invite you all to repentance, to name your gods, to tell God the false gods that you have worshipped, and to turn from them and say, God, I will trust in you. I give my devotion and my obedience and my worship and my love to you alone. And when you turn to God, what are you going to find there? Well, this passage says you're going to find a jealous husband. And why are jealous husbands angry? Well, for two reasons. On the one hand, they hate cheating, which might make us scary because we are cheaters. But also because they love their bride. And the story of the Bible is about the lengths that God will go to for his bride, his faithfulness to his bride. That even though our hearts have chased after many gods, and we've corrupted ourselves and we've become faithless liars, Jesus went to the cross to take the wrath that our uh, unfaithfulness deserves. When we were faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny his own. And so I invite you to turn to him today. Every other God, I promise you, will fail you. The true God will never fail you He loves you, and so, beloved, trust in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are good to us, that you speak to us the truth. Uh, You know even more deeply, more clearly, the unfaithfulness that has been a part of each one of our lives. Before we were Christians, after we were Christians, our sin nature would chase after any false god. Lord, train us in a life of repentance that today would be another day of turning from false gods to the living God and that You would teach us what it means to regularly turn from our idols, to know and to trust you, to worship you, with the great hope that we might actually become like our Savior. We long for Christ to be formed in us. So give us, by your Spirit, hearts that worship you alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.